Well, did the board meeting go okay? Did they approve yep. me for uh, VP? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> your 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 induction your induction pack and uh, and list of stuff you need to work on will be in the post. Nice. <laughs> With no check either. Yeah. <laughs> Missing our partner in crime, Zeb. Missed Zeb. He's the only one that keeps rock online. To record locally as well. Um, you can as a backup. Yeah, uh, just in case, because anything you can do as a backup to me would be great. Because Rocco's likely to break whatever distro he's on right now. <sighs> you ain't lying. <laughs> Challenge accepted. So you went back to what was broken. It wasn't broken. My level is fantastic. Michael is so important. Such a big deal. What'd you oh. do, dude? What happened? It cat got caught in the cord. Uh-oh. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> I was just going to say that um, I won't specify. Uh, so Ryan ruined the show. I know. Completely. <laughs> I usually do. Ryan, <laughs> why did you do that, dude? I was mad. I was angry at life. General. You don't have to ruin our lives just because <laughs> your lives are ruined. <laughs> well, how else am I supposed to feel better about myself? Exactly. Ryan does not understand what that means. I'm such a big deal. That's all, I can say. <laughs> all right. You ready, Rocco? I'm ready. Is everybody else let's ready? Are you ready now, Rocco? Uh yeah, let's go with let's go with yes. Welcome to another episode of Destination Linux Podcast. Welcome to episode 64. I'm Rocco, and with me this week are Ryan and Michael, and this is Destination Linux. So this week we are short PZ, our partner in crime, because he had real life issues to take care of. But we have an exciting, exciting show, so stick around. We have Neil McGovern, Executive Director of the Gnome Foundation. Welcome, Neil. Welcome. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. All right, so you are obviously the executive director of the Gnome Foundation. You've contributed to Debian as a developer. You're a former engineering manager of uh, Calabora. Is that how you say that? Calabra, yeah. Calabra. Um, you're an avid snowboarder. Yeah, it's uh, well, I try and go once a year at least, um, so that's always fun. What is it with all these smart people, Rocco, that also do sports on the side? <laughs> I, don't know. I think, yeah, that, I, think that, I need to go run on a treadmill or something, you know? <laughs> Well, it's, I have an elliptical right here, so it it has something to do with being smart Linux and being active. So I don't know exactly where it, where it falls into place, but nice. All of that aside, all of the whole director of Gnome Foundation stuff aside, everybody wants to know Neil. How do you say GNOME? GNOME, GNOME. How is it? Tell us. So the official way of doing it is GNOME. Uh, because it comes from the GNU project. Um, although, to be fair, if you just say GNOME, I often, I've said that for years, so I uh, I, I need to train myself, I, I reckon, to follow the branding of saying GNOME. Uh, but uh, as long as we all know we're talking about it, it's fine. But the official way is GNOME. There you have it. So that, we kind of have a pass now, though, Rocco, because Neil says that, you know, he'll accept either way. 
And with our I, brains, we'll never be able to retrain them. So well, people will just have to leave us alone. In the past, I prefer to just do the combination of gnome gnome. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. In the <laughs> past, we've settled on gnome gnome, and that way everybody's happy. And <laughs> yeah, it, it covers all bases. Everybody's happy or everybody's annoyed. Either way, you got it. Yep. Now, Neil, I want you to just notice if you can see in Rocco's background, we have the official gnome there. That's behind the Rocco. That's we call him Gnome Gnome. He's kind of our mascot. Excellent. Love yep. it. Yes. Yep. He's in every episode. So uh, I was watching one of your presentations. It was fantastic. 2020 and beyond presentation. It talked about how you started with free software while you were in university. Um, I believe your first distro was Mandrake. Is that right? Yeah, I believe it was. Um, we ran a, I, w- I was involved in the University of Sheffield IT committee. Uh, basically the the main university computing service didn't like offer any web space or anything for any of their students. So we had a, a bunch of us who were running um, some free software servers. And well, I say a server, it was a box under a desk, but uh, <laughs> uh, running a few things like that. So that, that's kind of where I, I first kind of got really involved. Now at that time, during that time period, I would assume windows was still the primary operating system that most average people were running on their desktop. What was it about Linux at that time that appealed to you enough to say, I'm not going to switch and try out that other world of Windows? Um, so I th- for, for a while I did have, um, I, th- I think my last Windows install was a Windows 2000 machine, which which kind of dates it a little bit. But before that, I'd, I'd always use Macintosh, as in before OS X days. Right. So I think the the ability to sort of tinker and fix stuff yourself was the sort of the scratch your own itch type thing is has always yeah. been what what kind of appealed to me to be able to get to use computing a bit better. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, there's so many times where I I mean, I used to do IT for major companies with Windows and things like that. But the idea when I got into Linux that naming all the separate components such as the desktop environment itself, the, you know, compositors and all this, that was for, I never even thought about that kind of stuff. And then when you get into Linux, you start learning all of these things that really make all the operating systems, but you never really hear in the windows world. And so that's definitely something that appealed to me as well. Love it. Yeah. So the, the, when you said you were Mandrake, you eventually went to Debian and became a developer for Debian. So what kind of projects were you involved in while you were, we were developing with Debian? Oof. Um, so my first thing I packaged was um, a, a client for, I'm not sure if everyone remembers it, but something called LiveJournal. Um, nice. Which was uh, before yeah. everyone called them blogs. Um, yeah, as a client for that. Um, I think, I think LiveJournal was the first ever service for that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was one of those very early ones. Um, but then kind of did a lot of stuff within the project. Um, so everything from 2007 organized DebConf, the big conference there in Edinburgh, um, wrote some policies on how you should package web apps, which never really got adopted and everyone still ignores. So, okay, because packaging <laughs> web apps is hard. Um Help found like the testing security team, so actually get security support for testing, um, and then ended up basically kind of as as the release manager for five years or so. 
the web apps thing is interesting because it's now it's all becoming electron based anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You seem very happy about that one. <laughs> well, I'm just, there is basically no, it's, it's becoming very difficult to essentially try and provide some sort of stable web app, um, which, yeah. which you can just update and then works with your system. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to basically manage that in a, in a central way. And it leads to frustrations. So. Yeah. There used to be a really cool system called Fogger about six years ago that I used to work with. And uh, unfortunately it deprecated, but it was a really, it was a really cool idea. So Neil, according to the press release last year, your, your primary job at GNOME is to support the project in terms of fundraising outreach and strategy. So can you tell us about the Gnome Foundation and what kind of work you're performing there? Yeah, sure. So there's, there's kind of three main areas that, that I help with the foundation. So one of them is what I call sort of biz, standard business administration. So making sure things like we get our tax returns filed on time, that we set budgets, that things kind of work smoothly there. Um, Another one is, well, as you mentioned, certainly fundraising. Um, obviously, we we would struggle to send a lot of our um, developers on to Hackfests or run Gradec and things like that, which is our big conference, uh, without getting getting some funding in there as well. Um, and the third kind of area is, is sort of uh, wider community engagement and, and and talking to people about GNOME and, and the sort of things we do, um, and not only just the desktop as well, but there's a lot of GNOME technologies which are used all over the place, um, and that sometimes people don't realize have kind of just come from the project as well. So trying to help show people how, how they can use, essentially just using free software to make to make better things for themselves. Right. So you were a part of both Debian, obviously, for a while, and now the GNOME Foundation. Do you find there are differences? I mean, there are always differences when you jump organizations. So I guess what are some of those differences in how things are approached or planned and executed in Debian versus GNOME? So so the the Debian project has a slightly different governance structure. Um, essentially, you're, you get elected as a, as a Debian project leader, but can't really do much yourself it's all kind of up to other people to actually do that and and try and sort of make things happen like that and it's it's its fiscal sponsor is um software in the public interest um which is has a lot more hands-off approach to things so interesting it's kind of a, the known foundation is is kind it's sort of a lot more engaged in actually sort of driving project forward and providing sort of a lot more active support than than in Debian or, or some other free software sort of communities I've found, which is which is good because then you can you can get a lot of help to go and do things. Right. Yeah. I mean, like the combination of both is is, uh, is great because you know every you need a foundational structure anyway. So like Debian provides that and then the outreach works on the other on the other side. Like it, it works pretty well. Um, so you you obviously have a lot a lot of great qualifications, so you know that makes sense why you're ex- executive director of the Gnome Foundation, um the Gnome Gnome Foundation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I've just got, I was just curious, how, do you have any personal goals that you've set for your time as being a part of the the Gnome team? Yeah, so um, 
kind of some of the thing I, I would like to see is a one thing that's always been a, a kind of interesting thing for me is around two things, which is around accessibility and making sure that we're able to carry on that, that people who don't have 2020 vision or can easily use a mouse or keyboard or anything like that are able to still access their computing because I think that's important. And the other kind of key area, which is, which, which I'm kind of keen on is, is outreach and making sure that we can reach people who haven't traditionally benefited from free software. So I was really pleased when I went to DebConf um, a couple of years ago in South Africa, for example, and trying to carry on pushing in areas and, and showing people where we don't traditionally have lots of free software support. So kind of outside of Europe and North America and, and a few other bits, especially in South America, where it isn't really as strong as we'd want, then trying to introduce more people to it and encouraging contributors and, and kind of growing that way. Nice. The, I mean, especially the, the, the outreach in general is, is, is really good, but I like the, I like the idea of the making accessibility at a forefront as well. Cause there's a, you know, I, I've multiple times I've developed software and then someone asked me like, how, you know, how do you have it work for accessibility? And I think I didn't, I didn't actually consider that at all. Like, uh oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think you mentioned in your 2020 conference about, Microsoft and there being only one program on there you could run when we talk about accessibility kind of in a, in a different junction, but being able to utilize some of the software, only one program you could run on Microsoft without being online, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's fascinating to think because so many people do not have internet connections. You guys are obviously going across the world trying to spread the news in many places, just like in the U.S., frankly. There are many people who don't have access to internet. They couldn't run those software packages. They couldn't even use them without the free software movement. Yeah. All right, so you have a big track record for being heavily involved in the open source and free software movements. Um, you just got back from Falstom, correct? Uh, from Libra Planet, which is the, yeah, in Cambridge, uh, the, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So that's the Free Software Foundation's annual conference. Yeah. All right. So what drives that passion? I know you touched on, you know, when you started in Linux, being able to tinker with things, but what drives that passion for the free, mar free and open source software? So for me, it's, I'm not particularly worried about the exact details of what's running where or something like that. So, I mean, if we're seeing things like free software is appearing in healthcare and cars and things like that, and yeah. there, there is a level of sort of how it's open and transparent and the rest of it. But the key thing for me is the freedoms and the, those kind of promises, those rights you get to the end user. So, so people should be sort of in control of their own computing and being able to fix things themselves or pay someone else to fix them um, if if it doesn't work for them or something like that. So, so essentially being in control of your own computing and not having someone else kind of telling you what you're allowed to and what you're not allowed to do um, with something that, that should fundamentally be something that, that you're able to do, I think is, is that's kind of what really drives me around free software movements. That's excellent. 
I completely agree. That's pretty much why I switched to Linux in the first place. Yeah, I think another big one is obviously privacy. You know, being a, obviously with Facebook and things in the news, that would be the most recent. But my gosh, it seems every week when we're doing news, even within, um, you know, Lin, when our Linux podcast and we're covering different news items kind of going on, privacy just seems to be this thing that continues to be invaded more and more and more. And personally, it just seems like there are some interest in the public and there are a lot of people that just seem like they've given up on this idea. Like, oh, these companies are going to take it. I have nothing to hide. So I'm not worried about it. Um, you're probably closer to the communities than myself. So what are your thoughts on, are you seeing the public become more interested in privacy as a whole? Yeah, I think so. So um, it's been a kind of interesting shift over the last five years or so. I mean, so I'm based in Cambridge in the UK, home of the, I'm sure, entirely innocent Cambridge Analytica um, and Facebook. So um, yeah. yeah, until proven guilty, of course. Right. But anyway, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's definitely an interesting one for me. I mean, I think I've, I've kind of, I'm not sure, but I kind of got the feeling there's, there has been a bit of a pushback against basically everyone just putting all their their personal information and their, and their data online. Um, I'm now talking to some younger people because I've been involved with um, a couple of youth groups and things in the past. And, and what I'm starting to see is people actually going, actually, I don't want to put all my stuff online and let right. everyone know because as, as more and more leaks happen, then people are starting to get a bit more wary of, what you're doing with control of your own data and, and exactly where that goes. I mean, the traditional mm -hmm. one I've always had is, is your, is your, your teacher at school saying, Hey, if you don't behave, it's going to go on your permanent record. <laughs> and this being this massive lie that there's some sort of permanent record that follows you around for the rest of your life. But, yeah. but with the internet, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I think that's where people don't realize. I mean, I mean, maybe they realize it just doesn't, they just doesn't hit them that, yeah, it is a permanent record and it is out there. And when people can see the problems that can arise from that being there, then they kind of care. Like before, they really didn't care. But I think we are seeing more and more people care about it. So, And I think they put too much trust in the abilities in some of these platforms to delete some of that information. Like on Twitter, for instance, you can go and delete some tweets, but there's an entire service that's dedicated to historically backing up every tweet that was ever posted on Twitter. So now if you get into a role where you're maybe more in the public eye, somebody could go find that archive. And even though you deleted it, it's still there somewhere. And I think yeah. more people kind of understanding that just delete, nothing really gets deleted on the internet. Like once you put it there, it's there to stay. And I think back to when I was a kid, obviously we didn't have all of that stuff. AOL was the big thing back then. It wasn't as broad as is utilized as it is today but some of the stupid things i would put online as a kid that could come back and haunt me and, yeah. and as a kid you think that you you're set on this way of thinking and therefore having it out there doesn't matter and that that's really there's a lot of responsibility that comes with something that will go with you forever and i don't think people necessarily always think about it in that way but privacy was the journey that led me to linux um by itself. So I started getting more and more into privacy and eventually that naturally led to Linux and me trying that out. 
What are some things that you guys are doing over there in the Gnome Foundation to increase maybe privacy awareness or privacy within your platform? Yeah, so uh, we've got, um, it's obviously, it's an important one for us. So you can do things like, have your location services turned off and things like that. It's very standard ones, but we've instantly, the latest release of GNOME had um, th- like threat metal models to do with like plugging in Thunderbolt or USB-C connections to make sure you get the right permissions for some of those. Um, cool. we've got a, and we've got a couple of internships coming up as well. Um, I think we're going to run them in November or so um, around, particularly around, privacy and security and, and what we're doing with those. Um, so a couple of the possible projects is around uh, USB protection and, and things like that. Um, maybe something around uh, credentials management. So things like how you store passwords or your other credentials and, and, and making that a bit better and, and, and easier to use for people as well. Um, and then there's possibly some work around Pipewire, which is the newish audio subsystem type thing to try and work out how we can sort of fix some of those as well. So it's, uh, it, it's nice. so we're going to be hopefully paying some, uh, paying some people to come along and, and, and improve privacy in, in, in GNOME and, and, and in free software more, more widely. Who's the Thunderbolt thing? Uh, is that using the Bolt framework from Red Hat? I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I haven't, yeah, I haven't, I don't, I don't have any Thunderbolt devices myself, so I didn't really look into that one. So okay. I know, I every just, time I hear about Thunderbolt, I'm like, who, where, where are these Thunderbolt USB <laughs> device yeah. things? I think my motherboard has one, but I've never touched it or used it. So I, I always think Thunderbolt, I think a Mac and you know, that's it. Yeah. They, they kind of, uh, you know, gave it, gave it press, but Thunderbolt has a lot of potential. Uh, I was just curious because I saw the the announcement that Red Hat made about Bolt, which is it was like when I, it was the first thing you look at Thunderbolt is because it uses the PCI bus, creates a, a basically an open window to have like an attack vector, and the Bolt framework was just built to be like a compensation for that that window. So that was you know just I was just something I was curious about because it's like a you know really interesting thing that they're they're approaching. Um, so in the the Microsoft uh, in the 2020 presentation, you talked about how Microsoft is can publicly congratulating Debian on a new release. And in the past they've done like birthday parties or release parties and stuff for Debian. Um, what, but a lot of people are very skeptical about and myself included about Microsoft's involvement in the open source, you know, free software movement. Um, what is your take on their involvement? So I think there's this, this kind of, Two things, a sort of positive spin and a and a, a cautious spin on it. Um, so one of them is I, from what I've seen, I think there has been a genuine change to actually realise that free software is a thing and a really important thing for people. I mean, on essentially on personal computing devices now, essentially, uh, I think Android is now just gone over fifty percent as well. So it. It is not longer the, the big dominant market that that it was, and seeing lots of use of of Linux of GNU Linux systems in clouds and things like that has kind of Microsoft has realised um, that yeah, you, it's not going to be a, a thing where you can just try and remove it and it's going to go away or 
just ignore it and that that's not going to happen anymore. Right. In general, though, I think people are wise. I, I think people are possibly a little bit more skeptical of Microsoft than others, given the history there and that that's never mm-hmm. been good. But yeah. I think I think it's wise for people to be generally um, skeptical about any organization who wants to kind of get involved with with free software and to have to try and work out what's the benefits there for for that organization. And in many cases, it can be entirely um, benign and, and they want to help out or they want to give back or something like that. Um, but um, I also don't think it, it's... I don't really believe in conspiracy theories that this is some sort of like big plot to get friendly and then and then remove everything again. Right, you know? but, it's not Gates anymore, so like it, the the three yeah. E's don't really apply anymore. Yeah, so it it is about working together and 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 being some level a level of welcoming for other organizations that want to get involved, but also remembering what we're trying to do, which is provide those freedoms to the end user, and that that's the kind of the really important thing we have. So is that that's basically the same take you you have for for the like the Windows subsystem for Linux as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it there is a case of also like pushing more, exposing more people to free software is always a good thing. Yeah, right. um, but it just need to make sure that it's that we sort of remember what we're trying to do and and, and kind of what we're doing with it. So cautiously optimistic skepticism. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Go for optimistic skepticism. I like that. My, my fear has always been that when I, I'm probably the newest Linux user out of everybody here, but when I started my journey, the one thing I would get comments from the community is, uh, Oh, enjoy that terminal, you know, good luck just sitting in a terminal all day, enjoy that text terminal and that type of stuff. And then when, when, Microsoft releases this, of course, you know, the open source community's found a way around it and things like that. But when they've released it as a subsystem, what do you get? You get this terminal with text. So somebody who knows nothing about Linux and goes exploring on their own, they go install this developer edition, they enable the Linux thing, and they think a terminal sitting there is Linux. Now, for a server administrator, great. We love that. We'll continue on and, and go forward. But for someone whose friend mentioned Linux and they want to go try it out, and that was the simplest way to install it, they think that's what we have. And that's, all, that's kind of my fear is that, in a way, a lot of people are uneducated about the technology that's out there. They're uneducated about Linux. They still think about it when it was back in the dark ages, as we call it, <laughs> Linux, mm-hmm. uh, where things were very difficult and you had to sit in the terminal all day to install things. And so that, that is one of my fears with what Microsoft did there is it presents Linux as just a terminal. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's marketing, right? So it, mm-hmm. we're, we're not really good as a community in kind of marketing ourselves. It's, it's, it's no. the understatement of the century. Yeah, no, yeah. So, so I think, there is a case that we just need to be better at saying, no, you don't need to sit there for half an hour and write mode lines for your monitor in your Excel <laughs> file anymore. Yeah. That's not a thing. Um, and just sort of trying to show people that actually it is, it works a lot better or just as well. And trying to sort of show how you can have something different that, so you don't need to go down, down these lines. Well, we will put a link in the show notes for this 2020 presentation, but in it, you have a a section for future predictions and Mm -hmm. you mentioned that the desktop is not dead. 
You also mentioned that you're kind of sketchy on predictions. <laughs> but right now, well, Apple has been running uh, commercials, and one of the commercials has a kid on the ground playing with an iPad, and the mom comes out and says, you know, hey, what are you doing on your computer? And the kid says, what's a computer? So are we getting to the point where we're seeing big corporations trying to do away with the desktop model? And what are your thoughts on maybe a post-PC era? So I certainly think there is a, that, I mean, there's been a huge shift um, from essentially people running their emails locally or something like that to everything's in the cloud and all is available. But there's, there's a couple of areas that I think it still remains important that we have a free software desktop. Um, firstly, it, it, it for those people who can't say, as you mentioned, afford an internet connection or, mm-hmm. um, or it's just not available, it, it's still important. Or for people who don't want to um, give away their, their own data to a, a third party who, who knows what they'll do with it, or, or people who just can't use um, Windows for whatever reason, um, it's, it's still important to be able to keep something locally. Now, there is also a move towards using more devices and kind of making it wider. And I don't think it's just, I don't think that the form factor really, really sort of changes some of those key things. So people being in control of their own computing. So being able to change stuff, being more secure and, 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 and respect your privacy more. I think that that's not necessarily going to change just because it moves from a a laptop with a keyboard to a tablet with an attached keyboard or, or however you do it there, that there's still some of those fundamental things are still there. So, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a, a good way forward yet. Yeah. And I think Apple is a little stretching and much for, for for a kid not to know what a computer is, even if they doesn't, they don't know, they don't, even if they don't use a computer, they know what one is. So. But this it was is, a yeah. commercial, Michael. They're all yeah, and they don't—they never lie in marketing. And Apple, <laughs> a- Apple never exaggerates. Of course, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, so, speaking of the like, you know, the desktop is is definitely not going to die. It's it's very it's more important than it's uh, than it has ever been for a lot of people as far as like developers and things like that. So, and that's that space. It's it's that's you know the post PC era is just is fun to for marketing and you know blog posts and stuff but uh one of the things that has always been a problem for the desktop of linux anyway is the availability of of packages and applications like you know for years it's always been a big pain point trying to get people to convince someone to come uh make software for the linux desktop uh but thankfully there's been a lot of projects that are being you know created for that purpose like flat packs snaps and app images mm-hmm. and you know, uh, Flatpak is pro- is the obviously the preferred version from the GNOME team. But what is your opinion of the, the importance of the these types of technologies like Flatpaks? So, so I think it's it's kind of really useful to be able to see what we're doing there. Um, from from a couple of points of view, obviously, I came from a, a distribution background as well, where everything came through the distribution. Yeah, but it's there's some apart from the obvious one of um, it helps connect upstreams directly with users. I mean, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's been one of the, the key things that has kind of been missing over the years and, and moving through distributions. 
So it's it's been always hard for GNOME as a project and maintainers to actually try and work out exactly what impact their their stuff is having on the users. It it can be a long lead time by stuff by the time stuff gets into distributions and then people use it. Yeah. Um, so that can be tricky. But the and so so it certainly will help with that and try and bring more people along. But the other interesting thing I think we can do is so so recently GNOME has moved to using GitLab for um, lots of its infrastructure and things like that. And some of the constant integration there is, um, it, sorry, the continuous integration means that for any particular commit or branch or something, uh, you can go click and then get the flat pack. So, and then nice. see what nice. changes you make. And so you can, it enables people to be able to contribute a lot more easily rather than having to download all of GTK and then mutter and then wait for four hours while this compiles and then you find out you're missing a dependency. <laughs> yeah, all that oh, I fun. love it. <laughs> so you're now you can just like get the latest thing, shove it in builder, click it, and then your application's there. So the mm, ability amazing. to attract new contributors, I think, is is kind of really, really exciting for me as well. No, I agree. That the the idea of like when every time I've wanted to there's there's these news articles that come out, like the latest version of like recently of Shotwell was coming out and before the flat packs even existed, there was this like, oh, GNOME has a new application that I can't use for six months. Great. Okay. I'll wait for this. Yep. But now with the flat packs, it's, you don't have to worry about it. You just download the flat pack and run it. So, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, but what do, you, what do you think about the, the other types, other solutions as far as like maybe one would like eventually win out or do they even need to? Um, so I don't think they necessarily need to. I mean, we've seen this in, other areas as well, all over free software, there is space for more than one options. Yeah. So something, there doesn't have to be a overall winner for, for everything to be improved um, around the place. I mean, obviously I think I, I prefer flat packs because of partially because of the way it's, it's a very community led led project that, that would integrate well with desktops and will work well with, with things like Wayland to get more secure models and being able to do things well that way. Um, but I mean, it doesn't necessarily at the moment make sense to have say flat packs on IOT devices or on servers or, or mm. something like that. So, so they, they, I think kind of have a slight different focus. So it'll be yeah, desktop oriented for flat packs and then like server IOT, like broad scale for snaps. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, I think like the flat the flat pack solutions is really nice, especially with like the flat hub and things like that. Uh, is there is there this is a kind of a side note, but is there any like official involvement with the flat hub? Yes, From, yeah. So it's uh, we're trying to work out the exact sort of fiscal relationship that that'll have and and what they'll officially come under. But I mean, certainly at the moment um, we're working like like some of the. Um, GNOME Foundation sysadmin time goes towards managing FlatHub and some of our um, some of our legal advice. So I have regular meetings with with some of the foundation lawyers to try and make sure you can get good user agreements in place, and so you people can host stuff safely and securely, and make sure that uh, that that we're not being exposed to to actions of of random people and things like that to be able mm -hmm. to improve it. So. In the future, 
don't know, but certainly at the moment, it's it is the GNOME Foundation who's kind of trying to really kickstart FlatHub and and try and get stuff going there as well. Nice. So GNOME is a, a huge product. It's a lot more than just a desktop. <laughs> so when you're making decisions concerning the desktop, that affects everyday users. Uh, we mentioned Microsoft earlier. You know, obviously Apple. They a lot of times will make decisions that affect everyday users, and it doesn't. They give off the impression that they don't care, that they're going to make the decision and they don't care. So, what do you do? I mean, obviously, you guys care about the user base. So, what can you do, or what do you do to communicate those changes and let users know that you do care about what they think? Yeah. So, I'd I'd certainly say that. Sometimes in the past, uh, the GNOME project hasn't necessarily been the <laughs> best at explaining their rationale. That, that's that's probably putting it putting it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, recently that I'm optimistically skeptical about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think one of the important things to kind of look at is actually the. The main reason that GNOME 3 and the workflow works the way it does is it's it's being driven by user testing and by actually watching people use desktops and seeing how they want to use it and how they interact with things and making sure that people can do stuff easily. Um, and that's been kind of the entire point of the design behind GNOME. It's it's not just to look pretty, it's it's to be functional. And we had some of that. So just before Libra Planet, we ran a, a spinach con um, with the Free Software Foundation, which is idea of you, you've got a little bit of spinach in your teeth or something and just <laughs> trying, to, trying to find those niggly things to fix. And, yeah. and, and loads of stuff is, is driven by that actually watching users and, and seeing what they do there. Um, and so... And then it comes to communicating it. Now, it's not necessarily been the best in the past, but certainly recently, I've certainly encouraged people, especially when there's been a big change, to to try and explain the rationale of why you're doing it and and the reasoning behind it. So to try and make it obvious, it's not just you're not just making an arbitrary decision. There there is a story behind it. There's reasons for the change, and then hopefully then people can realize that even if they don't disagree with the decision, they can see why it was made and, and what sort of trade-offs there were to do it. Um, but at the end of the day, then some people on Twitter and Reddit just won't read it anyway, and right. yeah, you'll get thanks for everything you do. So, Well, you're kind of right <laughs> in that area because no matter which way you turn, um, there's going to be some people that are unhappy. Uh, yeah. But communicating to people is the best way to go about it because uh, if they don't, you know, if all of a sudden their desktop changes and they pop, it pops in on them, they're going to be pretty upset about it. So, And I completely get it. I mean, if someone's been using something one way for ages and then it changes and something else needs to, and you need to change something to deal with it, then, uh, then it's a disruption and, and it's not great, but, um, Sometimes we you need to make changes to be able to improve things, and yeah, uh, you try and make that in the least disruptive way possible. And that's that's fair. Um, one of the things that are is, is a big change for a lot of different applications and stuff is the client side decorations versus the server side decorations. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of issues where some applicant you could, there's some developers are just not going to switch to client side because you know they don't they might not like it or or whatever reason they have. But uh, what is your opinion of like the transition between server side and uh, client side, as well as how they will work on you know X versus Wayland? So, so firstly, I'm not a graphic stack developer, but um, I think what what we kind of need to look at is, I mean, my, my basis for this is X is terrible. X11 is just terrible. It's, it's just awful. Um, it worked for ages and it still, or I say works, it still kind of works now, but it, it works good enough. But the amount of maintenance and code and, and it's, it's all clunkiness behind the scenes is just awful. And so then there needs to be some sort of change there. And so part of the use of the move towards client-side decorations is, is kind of twofold. It, it, one is about performance. So you're not stuck waiting on other processes to then, okay, I want to draw this bit of the window here. And then you have to wait for something else and go, oh, and then it needs to have this thing around here. So you can just go, dear compositor or whatever, put this image on the screen and you're done. And you could, and you can do things a lot quicker and it, and, Getting, changing some of those performance issues is, is really good. But also the, the, the flexibility to be able to actually do things with client-side decorations is, is something that we're, we're seeing kind of a lot around, as well as things like saving on-screen real estate as well is, is kind of useful. Yeah. So, so I can see the definitely the, the reasons why people wanted to, to kind of move towards that. I mean, but that said, I can see the advantage of, of why people wanted server-side decorations as well. Um, mm -hmm. If you want to be able to apply a theme across many different apps somehow, yeah. then, then that would be a way of doing it. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit less convinced by that argument because if all your buttons and all the entire toolkit and everything's all in completely randomly different anyway, then, then it's well, not necessarily the best. But there, there are certainly advantages in both ways. But yeah. Just the way that there is kind of a pressing move to to move away from X and, and, and yeah, I agree with that. One of the things that falls out of it. One of the main arguments for server side decorations is the ability to remove all decorations. Yeah. So for right for some applications in, that are CSD based, uh, one of the biggest ones that pops out to me is the is Epiphany, where there's a like Epiphany is in general the server side. I mean the, the client side CSD stuff is fine, but mm -hmm. there's like there's a really cool tool in Epiphany where you can create web apps like individual session based web apps through epiphany which work great except for the client side decorations are are not removable and it's just like the, that part is only annoying it's like in general it doesn't bother me but just the principle of what those client sides do the decorations are back forward home refresh where you could right click and have all of those as well so it's like yeah. that kind of one that one individual that's a really specific pain point, I, I, I admit, but like that kind of thing, just like being able to remove the decorations would be great. Yeah, I mean, so a, a lot of the things, as I understand it, and I could be wrong, but a lot of the things is that things like server-side decorations are kind of used as that proxy for tiling window manager, sorry, tiling window manager um, yeah. systems as well. And it's kind of been sort of a, crutch so the window manager's kind of broken expectations to make the client fit in this bit over here 
and and so yeah. it has it's kind of been a workaround for let's do this window like this and then squish over here so what has actually happened i think there's various um Wayland people um who've been working actually on trying to come up with a way to that clients do tiling properly in the first place instead of kind of tossing it through let's do weird stuff with the windows as well so mm. i don't yeah, think just server-side decoration is 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 kind of the right way of doing it actually fixing it properly might be a better idea yeah the only reason i even care about not having decorations is the tiling aspect so if the if the csd solved it i yeah i wouldn't care at all <laughs> yeah and and there's I mean, interesting. There's there's some um, there's a couple of GNOME developers um, who are working um, at getting better tiling and and solving some of these issues, despite them not particularly using it internally anyway. But it's an important thing for to actually try and do for the wider community as well, because this trying to get stuff done is 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 important there. So Ubuntu made the announcement recently. We talked about Xorg that they're going to go back to Xorg as the default versus Wayland. Mm -hmm. You know, Wayland is one of these things for me that everybody talks about as the future. It sound sounded really exciting until I tried to use it with an NVIDIA product. And then being at 78% of the market that NVIDIA owns, my fear is, you know, even when Ubuntu did this originally, although they did it brilliantly, by the way, because you would boot into Ubuntu, it would see that you needed to use an Xorg session and automatically switch you. So as a user, it was none the wiser, and Ubuntu always does that stuff the best. But my fear was that if other distros weren't going to do that, for instance, like Fedora, they kind of force a Wayland session unless you go and manually switch it to Xorg. I can't use it. It's completely unusable. And for users who now... We're seeing so many people jump over to Linux. If they don't get that fixed, if Wayland sits there and blames NVIDIA and NVIDIA blames Wayland and nobody comes and somehow solves this, we're in big trouble here because we're going to have this part where we're saying we're all moving to Wayland, but 78% of your users can't. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting one. So I, I know the, the interesting one is so previous Ubuntu release did use Wayland by default and we've seen some of that. I, I think personally that um, kind of the reason they're, they're moving back to X11 is because it's an LTS coming up. And so we need to be kind of be able to support that for a long time. So, I mean, there are, there are still bugs in Wayland, sure. Um, there's some areas that need fixing, there's some improvements, but it, it really hasn't had the exposure, I think, to sort of real world use cases that, that mm. say, well, certainly X11 has. So trying mm. to, Giving that more, uh, we, there is sort of a chicken in the egg situation of you need to get that exposure in. Now, the, the whole NVIDIA um, thing is, for me, frustrating. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, massively frustrating that that this is kind of situation. I know there's, I, I think some of the, I think I read that some of the Wayland devs are kind of working on abstracting that out a bit. So it should work no matter what your, graphics um, subsystem underneath is um, so trying to improve some of it but yeah I can I can completely understand that um, that the Wayland the frustration from the Wayland folks and, and also uh, Canonical's decision to move to X11 for their LTS project 
to, to yeah. I mean, it was surprising to me as a newer Linux person and hearing about Wayland for the first time. I was super excited about it. And then I saw that, well, this has been in development for like eight yeah. years or something like it. It's been out there a while. And then when I saw the NVIDIA issue, it really bugged me. And here's the thing that worries me is while the open source community can always make a workaround, right? They There is nothing you can sit in front of them <laughs> that they can't hack. Um, that a lot of people you know, on our channels and things that we talk to, the big thing that's holding them from Linux going to Linux sometimes is gaming. And, you know, like I said, 78% of the market's NVIDIA. And then when you look at a gaming system, so if they hack Wayland and they make it work with NVIDIA, I won't be surprised. But I would be surprised if they could hack it and actually make it so that it performs in gaming well at all. And if it doesn't, if they don't, if they don't get that partnership going with them or figure this out, and I don't know who's wrong. I don't really care. I just want them to get together <laughs> into a room and uh, force them to figure this out. But if they, if they don't, you're still stuck with the same issue. So just because I could get Wayland to boot in and I could open my word processor and a terminal and all that, great. But from screen flickering to gaming to screen tearing and all that type of stuff, that's like the Novo driver, the issues that still exist today with that. It, it's just, I wonder with Wayland, as long as it's been, is this thing ever going to really take off if they don't get those type of issues fixed? Well, uh, so, so one of the, the interesting ones there is when I was at Calabra um, is uh, Calabra helped make SteamOS happen. Um, and we're Very seeing nice. a lot of, yeah, so that was great fun. I got some free games. It was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it is awesome. Wait, you're a gamer? <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. At, at, at the moment, it's, uh, yeah, probably take my uh, free software credentials, but it is uh, finishing off Mario Odyssey on the Switch. It's fantastic. Oh, there's nothing nice. wrong with that. Oh, so good. Um, but yeah, so so seeing some of that actually is really interesting. And some of the, the seeing Valve hiring free software graphics people yes. as well is kind of really interesting to see. And I mean, obviously I can't speak for Valve, but I can't imagine that they'll want to maintain X themselves forever. Right. So, so that using that leverage is, is kind of really interesting about how, about how that sort of relationship will, that might well lead to something because Valve are some of the people who can push say, Hey, this is going to be important for us. And right. so we, we need to get that sort of thing better. And I know, uh, so I know, so one of the people who used to work with Daniel Stone, who's one of the lead Wayland people, also works at Collabor, and he's head of the graphics team there. So, hey, so I'm sure that I'm sure there are conversations that are going on, well, that to try and like improve things as well. But it's again, it can be Move sometimes on. quite hard to see that because yeah. some of it's not necessarily public. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good point. Well, that's, that's good to know that even though, I mean, that's fantastic because the people who are currently trying to work on it is, is people who were getting SteamOS in the first place. So like that, that's all it, that I didn't know that that was, that was happening. So that was, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and if Steam says move to Wayland, everyone moves to Wayland, unless you want to lose 60% of your software sales. <laughs> we just need yeah. to twist NVIDIA's arm a little bit. That's all somehow. Yeah, you know, there you way. go. Well, Vulcan's totally helping with that too. So like the, the, yeah, all, exactly. uh, fighting on all fronts is good. So. I mean, technically, NVIDIA has also kind of not been so like they're considering dropping GL Stream. So, like, there's there's potential there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so let's let's move into like a different different type of conversation as far as um, you know, the, what are the like the differentiations between like your in your opinion about like GNOME versus other desktop environments? Um, 
So I've used a variety of desktop environments throughout my years. The, the kind of the, the interesting thing for me about GNOME is what I'm going to class as design. It's not just looking pretty. Um, it's about integration and how how users interact with it and kind of getting out your way to be able to do what you want to do and doing that in an elegant way that makes it easy for people to use. Um, and when I say people, I don't necessarily mean people like me. Um, it's normal users who don't want to necessarily ever like touch a command line or mm -hmm. something like that. People who like my, my mum and dad who, as who are running uh, macOS at the moment, and are getting, I think, a little bit sick of me trying to get them to install <laughs> something. But, so, so when I finally wound them down enough, then it'll be great. So then, uh, then I can get it installed. But, but I mean, we we've seen the sort of use of free software on on the desktop is is it's kind of plateaued, and part of the thing that things like GNOME and actual user design, user-based design is trying to do is trying to make sure that it is usable by normal people who, who just want to use their computer to do things. Um, and the, the other key, key difference for me is, is, um, is things like, as I mentioned before, uh, which I don't use personally, but is accessibility. So making sure that things carry on working and that you can have really good integration of, 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 of making things that are accessible for everyone. Well, everybody knows that I'm a big fan of GNOME, and I think it's one of the <laughs> oh, most- Oh, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful desktops out there, okay? And recently I told Ryan, I, I have this thing going where I give people a GNOME challenge. So I mm -hmm. talked to Ryan a couple of weeks ago and I said to him, he was not uh, into it at first. And then I said, look, you have to try GNOME for at least a week and run it. And after that, you can come back and tell me you don't like it, but I want you to come back and tell me what your thoughts on it after you've run it for a week, because I think personally, GNOME has the best workflow out there in a desktop environment. And he did try it. Ryan, what did, what did you think? I mean, it changed my opinion completely. There were things that initially, because I was, so, you know, I, like I said, I was newer. I'm newer into Linux than most of the folks here, but I went deep into things like window manager only, you know, desktop environments and that type of stuff. So when having multiple monitors doing many different projects that I'm running on, when I open the menu, this was the big thing for no When I'd open the menu and it would take over my whole screen and then my secondary screen shrinks everything over on the second monitor, I was like, well, now my second monitor is unusable. I've got this giant, you know, screen here. And so it didn't click on me how this is going to become a workflow. Now, fast forward a week later, and now I'm like looking for this giant screen and the searchable icons and getting all this. So it's one of those in the window managed tiling functionality built into GNOME is fabulous. It is amazingly well done. There are a lot of desktop environments that have Windows tiling in it and they have the shortcut keys there, but they're completely unfamiliar to somebody coming from, say, an i3 or an awesome or something like that. Whereas yeah. the GNOME team almost felt like they went to i3 and awesome played with it and said, okay, well, we'll figure out those shortcuts and we'll put them all within the default and boom, you've 
got it. You've got all that functionality there of what you would want to use it for. And then of course you can add extensions in there as well to add even more functionality. So once I started doing the extension piece, I created a workflow that I couldn't leave for a long time. And part of the podcast is I have to jump, try different distros for different people coming on or whatever. And I, I was mad at Rocco for it because he proved me wrong. <laughs> I was really mad. I still kind of mad at him about it. Okay. But no, it's very beautiful. So, well, the point is it has an awesome workflow and it's yeah. beautiful. So how do you or how does the design team balance functionality versus beauty, you know, a lot of customization options versus not allowing somebody to customize that particular piece of the desktop. Yeah. So I could kind of, as I mentioned before, for us, it's, there's no point in something just looking pretty or looking snazzy. It's about how it's used and what aspects of essentially that design add to things. So just because it looks pretty doesn't really help much it's about making sure that that kind of things are usable and and the, there's been a, a lot of user testing and things like that to try and make sure that it all kind of fits together well um so some i mean some of that is kind of interesting because it comes down to some principles around so for things like settings what we're what we're trying to do is make sure that the things that the most people care about and want to change are up there in front and center. And then beyond that, you can make things more discoverable as people go into things. So if you have a look at the GNOME settings thing, it starts off with basic things, but then you can drill down and kind of improve it. So it is moving away from the older system where you had, you had to be able to toggle everything all at the same time, and you could tweak it as much as you want partially because it can get really, really confusing as to what that means and, and, and what you can do. Um, but also, um, I mean, we're, we're, the project's run by a bunch of volunteers, right? So there's only so much we can actually support and manage to maintain. Right. Um, so making sure that that's actually in place is, is something that we kind of have to make that balance of, of providing these sort of ultimate flexibility to customize and, and do things around, but actually still keeping it as something that's usable and ordinary users can just go and do. Yeah. I think that goes back to the communication part of it where it, when changes like that are made or when settings or that like that are removed, it's best to communicate why <laughs> the change was made so that people understand it rather than just say, Oh, they removed another setting. So yeah. And yeah, I mean, sometimes it does happen that stuff gets dropped, but yeah, trying to explain why is, is, is kind of important. And I mean, interestingly, I mean, GNOME is massively customizable. It's just, we don't have a necessarily a big pain where you can adjust things mm -hmm. just manually yourself through a, through a UI basically. Very true. So the GNOME desktop, I, I would love to be a bit of fly in the wall. If you have behind the scenes video, you can send it to us of the moment when Ubuntu said, no, GNOME's going to be our default desktop environment. How did those conversations take place and uh, what were the parties like afterwards? <laughs> oh, it was. Uh, so, so I had a, a friend sent me a message saying, Hey, what, what are you up to tomorrow? It's like, uh, I don't know. There's a, you about, you might want to kind of 
have a look. Well, I think it was later that day, actually, and said, you might want to just like keep an eye on the news or something because there's going to be some announcements. And so I had no idea. I had absolutely no, no kidding. Wow. I, I had no prior knowledge or no warning that that this this kind of bombshell was, was going to hit. Um, so it was. So what was your was, first impression then? Uh, it's kind of a mixed feeling. Um, one, I mean, it's really exciting for us that that we have stuff coming back to Gnome. Um, secondly, I think I do a little bit as kind of worry because I have friends who worked at the for Ubuntu on the desktop team and things like that. So it was all being a little bit unclear what was going to happen and what the fallout was and what this was going to mean as well. Um, but also, and the, and the third one was, I think, kind of a, a large level of respect for Mark Shuttleworth for making that decision. Um, because, I mean, having convergence in Unity was was kind of one of his babies, right? So his saying it's like yes okay we tried it it didn't work we're not doing that anymore is is quite a hard thing to do so uh, and and he went and did it and just was, was straightforward with it <laughs> as well so i mean that 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 certainly earns a bit of respect for me so this weird sort of mixing bowl of different emotions because i i didn't really see it coming and then suddenly it happened so it was wow it was kind of a bit of a daze really I didn't expect that. I expected Canonical to come in with men in suits with briefcases that were handcuffed to their hands. And they came and, you know, open up this thing and a golden light comes out and says, you've been selected. None of that. No. Wow. Well, darn. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No, no juicy gossip behind the scenes. So, as far as the customization of the gnome desktop there's a there's a lot of extensions approach mm -hmm. and like this is can be like uh you know a, a good and a bad thing overall but i'm just curious what is your position of like the gnome extension method as far as like the the official extensions and the community extensions and like how much involvement does the gnome team have for like the extensions community is we're not really just like the the overall market of the extensions so yeah, so I mean, we have. I mean, that there are views that maybe we, we need to change sometimes how how the extensions work because it's kind of, at the moment it just sort of monkey patches code in the way and it, it's not great, but it does give you at least that flexibility to kind of change everything about the shell and the way it works. Um, I mean, there's extensions.gnome.org, which I mean, part of the problem is that it's been relying on volunteers to go and review stuff and make sure things are okay and check things like that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of the people who've been doing that have got busy recently. So there's been a backlog of unreviewed extensions. So I've been doing it, which has been great. Uh, so <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you for taking the so, time to do that. So recently there, there has been some um, normally. So all the, I think all the ones which are just updates to already approved extensions have all been cleared out, but there's some of them that are massive piles of code and the ability to sort of review that and to make sure that it's going to not sort of crash the shell and leave it in the same state when it's, it's uninstalled is, is really hard to do. Um, I mean, I think overall where I kind of want to move towards is that I mean, extensions are an important part of our ecosystem. So, mm -hmm. It allows users to modify their desktop experience to how they want, if they particularly want, if there's 
something they don't particularly like or a way that they don't want to use it. It's very useful for more power users who want to change something like that. Um, but it's also, it's, it's, it's an interesting tool for designers, so internal GNOME people, to try out different UI elements really easily and be able to tweak things really. So, so there's that framework as, as well there. Um, what I think we kind of would like to do is sort of create this thriving sort of independent community around extensions and and have sort yeah. of extension writers self-support each other and 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 do samples around that. I mean, we we don't really have the resources to and, and just the volunteers to sort of maintain that um, community. I mean, we'd always love sort of more volunteer volunteer or more volunteers who want to come and help manage and kind of help review extensions and, and, and do things like that. So yeah, it's, it'd be something that, that would be kind of keen on doing, but it's, it's, it's not something we have as much time for as we'd like. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a bit of a rambling response, but hopefully that, that kind of. <laughs> yeah, that answered it. Um, it, that I used to be maintainer of some extensions and, um, when I was, um, when I decided to hand it off to some other people, uh, it was pretty difficult to find some people to, to maintain those. Yeah. Um, but there was one thing that was interesting. I found about the, the extensions.gnome.org website was that the, there's now for the longest time, there wasn't an ability to download any of the extensions, but mm -hmm. now there is, you can get the zip files and, that, and that's pretty cool. You can pick it like which version of gnome you'd want this particular add on for. Um, but the, the ability to install the uh, install from a zip file in the gnome tweak uh, application was removed in 326 so mm -hmm. it just seemed like the timing was a little interesting uh, what was the reasoning behind the the removal in that in that sense so the reason it disappeared so i had to chat with the uh, gnome tweak tool people and it's because it um, got subsumed into gnome software so GNOME software get, got the ability to install and uninstall extensions, basically. Right. So rather than keeping in the tweak tool and hidden away, then it, it just got moving into GNOME software. Now, then since then, I think there was move. So actually installing directly from zip files is a problem. Um, so that's not exposed properly, which isn't great. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not convinced that it needs to kind of be there for and front in GNOME software. Um, if there's an easy way of just being able to, because I'm not sure how many sort of standard users are going to like download zip files right. and and install them themselves. And well, certainly ones who can't just open a open a terminal window and just copy it into the right directory. Um, right. It, there's kind of a, a thing there, but I mean, certainly trying to get a way of installing a local version of extension, I think, could be useful. Okay. That's, that's pretty much all. Whether it's in GNOME Tweak or GNOME Software, it doesn't matter to me as long as it's available. Like Just to kind of like, uh, in case there's a new extension that's being made that someone wants to utilize that's not in the extensions.gnome website. Yeah. So like like that that's one of the examples I think would be really good for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, ideally we'd want stuff to go through extensions.gnome.org, but admittedly at the moment the reviews aren't going great. So um <laughs> Hey, yeah, that, that's kind of what happens. I mean, <laughs> that makes sense. And, and there are, there is stuff I'm working on as well to kind of improve that. So lots of automation using things like OpenQA to install nice. the extension, get rid of the extension, 
does the screen still look the same or have they left droppings everywhere and and things like that and and, and trying to get some more automation to make it a bit easier there um for the standard user that's kind of where we'd like them to go from or at least a trusted source so somewhere they can go and have stuff that's been audited because mm-hmm. standard users who there needs to be that level of trust especially as it has such unfettered access to essentially your entire shell yeah it's it's actually really also really cool to hear that uh, open qa is being used utilized in the gnome um, ecosystem sort of yeah so. um, there's some of it that we don't really use it as much as we want to um but it's it's something that i'm kind of keen to make sure we can do for to get make sure we catch things like regressions and yeah. and just use stuff around that because it, it 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 is quite a cool technology yeah i agree well we talked earlier about communicating when changes are made and one of the the recent communications of changes that were made was the desktop icons were going to be removed <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. personally don't care because I don't use desktop icons anyway, but there are a lot of either. users that do care. So why was, I know why the decision was made because, you know, I can read the blog posts, but not everybody reads the blog posts. Yeah. So why was the decision made? And is there a chance that there will be a suitable workaround? Yeah. So, um, the idea is that it's about six, seven years ago, GNOME 3, actually possibly longer than that, GNOME 3 originally came out. And basically the concept of icons in the desktop have kind of not been there for that long, which means that this functionality in essentially the, the file browser um, has been mostly unmaintained. Um, so there's been a lot of work to try and sort of put it in a place where this could work or something like that so it doesn't actually affect the ongoing development of file managers. So it's it had some of that. But it's it's kind of got to the point where it's kind of blocking any further work and every sort of major problem we have is is around this this sort of bit of old code. Um, and so, I mean from the GNOME point of view it it doesn't really so the workflow that you're talking about earlier doesn't really work that well for just having icons on the desktop in in the same way um and if you want to get to a list of shortcut applications you hold the meta key and press a and your applications appear and you can select them or start typing or, or do whatever you want there and also the the other one which we've seen from user testing of getting actual real world users is that icons on the desktop for documents for example are really really useful for about the first two weeks that someone has a computer and then it just gets covered full of it, it kind of looks like my home folder now it does now it's just it becomes the location that everything gets saved to and so then you can never find anything because it's all over each other and it, it's kind of a bit of a mess i was just say i have a lot of stuff in my desktop folder and specifically make sure it does not show on my desktop because i don't really want to see it yeah yeah it's it's just, it's a thing so it's it's some people really like it, but it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, we can't keep on maintaining it like that. So there's kind of three main areas. Um, I mean, as an indication, the kind of the amount of work, some of it is, I think, 10,000 lines of code. Wow. It's ridiculous. Um, 
to just her desktop. Uh, so icons. Yeah, this. yeah. It's well. So the, the desktop is like it's ten thousand lines of code, um, and this was technology available in nineteen ninety nine. So it's not using necessarily the latest technology oh, yeah. ways of doing it as well. So so that's the kind of problem we're dealing with. It's not something that oh, it's something from a few years ago that we just got bored with. It's it's, <laughs> it's a really old thing. So, so kind of there's, there's three kind of solutions. Um, one of them is to kind of like make a fork internally of um, our file manager and call it like GNOME desktop type thing. But again, no one would really want to maintain that massive chunk of old code. Right. Uh, fortunately, there is also another fork. I think it's called Nemo. Um, so if people particularly want to do it, uh, they can use that. That's fine. But again, it has some of those similar problems that, that that's kind of been faced. So that's kind of the third option is to make a um, shell extension, like we were talking about earlier. And the, um, the main maintainer of Nautilus actually made a prototype extension so if anyone wanted to mm. particularly take that and move it on then then that's fine as well um so i think that that's kind of the the thing for people who really want to to kind of for yeah. whatever reason have have those things directly on the desktop they can click on for those that really want to have a complete disaster on the desktop <laughs> <laughs> i go to some computers and there are icons all over the oh my desktop gosh, and i yeah. can't I mean, you, like you said, I can't find anything because yeah. there, there's just so many icons. So, and if you move one because you're trying to, like, if you install something and then it, then it, it adds an extra desktop icon, they go really mad about how you just moved it. It's like, well, you told me to inst- I didn't do this. <laughs> so, besides GNOME, obviously, what are some other desktop environments that kind of pique your interest in the whole? Like one of my favorite books is Steal Like an Artist. You know, some that you look at and you admire, you say, hey, those are some great ideas. Is there anything out there that really you're constantly, you know, just piquing your interest you really enjoy? Yeah, so I mean, I think, well, before, so I had GNOME 2 and then I've tried XFCE and Awesome as well, um, which does nice kind of interesting stuff as well. Um, I mean, one of the, the other really cool areas that are happening is is some of the, some of the stuff that's happening in KDE is, is really awesome. Like KDE Connect. Oh, absolutely gosh. awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. I, I, I run it myself. There's a shell extension to do, and you can run KDE Connect. It's it's great. So it's and that ability to sort of integrate with your devices is is fantastic. I mean, one of the one of the interesting ones is I think it was KDE's birthday, and so I tweeted on the GNOME account saying Happy Birthday KDE, and <laughs> the people was like, "Aren't you guys going to hate each other?" Or <laughs> Your arch nemesis. Yeah, we're just making free software. I mean, it's, yep. yeah, we're, we're just trying to do good stuff. And yeah, I mean, there's some things we work together on, some things we don't. But yeah, I mean, having a look at some of the, the things that are coming along are, are really kind of interesting. So um, speaking of like, you know, the, the, your, your interest in different desktop environments, um, what, what are your, what do you think is like the best, uh, ex, um, well, I say, what's, what, what distros represent the GNOME desktop environment the best as far as like the best implementation and best presentation? Um, obviously, we have Fedora there, who's, um, who's kind of quite up there with, with, with some of them. They're always kind of a, a very recent version of, of GNOME. Um, 
I suspect we we'll, might get something similar coming from Ubuntu at some point as well. It's kind of a bit early days there to try and work out what they do. And obviously they have some legacy stuff that they wanted to try and keep things fairly consistent from how they previously worked. Um, yeah. I'm kind of hopeful there. Um, so at this user testing, I think one of the things I used was um, OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, which mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. I mean, so that their use of OpenQA and things is really impressive as well. I mean, they normally manage to get the new GNOME release into their testing branch. Um, to, so through their unstable or something within four or five hours of us announcing the actual, oh, yeah. because yeah, they just yeah. upload it and then run it all and it loads up screens and checks to see what's changed and does regression yeah. testing and then it's done. Um, yeah, so that open that's... QA is amazing. Like, yeah. if you ever just play with it, it's just it. There's even like you can go to like the latest test and see the videos of the, of the automated testing and stuff. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, so 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 they're doing really cool things as well. I mean, it's but yeah, yeah most of the main distros. If you can kind of install a vanilla GNOME experience, then then it's all good for me. Nice. <laughs> so sp- speaking of uh, what's good for you, what is your personal daily driver? Uh, Debian, of course. Nice. Um, but specifically, I'm on I'm nice. on Debian testing as well, which is kind of Debian's rolling distro type thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, the Buster so, yeah, version. I'm, so I'm so yeah, so I'm running. Um, yeah, I'm so I've got GNOME three twenty eight on it, just running fine, and it it's got some this stability of Debian stuff, and uh, and yeah, you get to use all your stuff. Brilliant. And I my fingers don't remember anything that isn't apt so i can't use <laughs> or dnf or I, I, I just get confused i don't understand it so i'll just stick with devs that makes sense so we recently had shri on from system 76 and we discussed everything from system 76 to pop os which utilizes the gnome desktop so have you checked out pop os and maybe what your thoughts on it are yeah, so I've I've had a, a, a quick look at when it, whenever someone announces that they're that they're something based on GNOME or something like that, I try and have a have a have a kind of look around. It's it's kind of really interesting what System seventy six are doing and trying to really get a a system which sort of integrates all well and gets that sort of good experience for for everything that 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 works together. Um, that they work quite closely with things like upstreams and things like that and trying to trying to work with us as well and they're doing quite some interesting stuff with their installer is kind of cool as well and and it's something that i think is there's, there's certainly space for and it's it it looks like kind of an interesting project well it took a lot of heat when it came out uh for just for for the name itself and for just being a, a an overlay of just themes and stuff but they've done a lot of work in it and yeah. it is really nice so yeah, it's absolutely There's definitely gorgeous. space for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the GNOME Foundation has done something that just it makes me so happy, and I'm hoping there's more here because I have been pushing. I work in telecom. I've worked in telecom for 18 years, and I think number one, people are bored to death of Android and iOS just by themselves. Number two, Android to me represents nothing about the open source community we look for, especially when it comes to privacy. I mean, just recently with their ridiculous application permission system that allowed Facebook to basically read every single one of your text messages and everything else is a perfect example of why Android is not representative of Linux. 
I want to see a true Linux-based smartphone out there. You guys have done some stuff with, I mean, there's some things going out there with Librem and other things. What is your take in this arena? And can you guys please push a phone to the market? (laughs) (laughs) You can go buy a GNOME-based phone on eBay now with the old Nokia stuff. Um, The N900, for example, this was stuff using GDK. It was stuff running Linux. it mm-hmm. it existed. Unfortunately, then then the whole being bought by Microsoft and getting shut down thing happened. So hey, not right. great. Um, I mean, I think it's really important. It's something that I would love to see. I mean, I've I've signed up for the the Kickstarter myself as well um, personally because yeah. I want this to happen. I do want. I do think it's important that there should be something around a a good bit of hardware you can install free software on and it's it's fairly open bit of hardware and trying to make this happen is it's a great thing that we should be able to do yes um, and you can bring some of the peer creation type stuff which happens with free software um so having a massive community of global people pulling together to create that and that hasn't doesn't really happen even in like Android or on iOS or anywhere else. This is this is something yeah. that's really powerful that we can do and we can pull together, try and do things. Um, I'm really pleased with the sort of progress. I, w- I was really impressed actually that um, they've managed to make the progress they have because mm-hmm. having been involved in places, um, working places previously, which have try to make phones and or try to make hardware it's a hard thing to do yeah mm-hmm. really is it's i mean fortunately things like purism folk make hardware already so there's some stuff there that they're, they're not walking completely blind but it's it's going to be a hard thing to work into it but i mean i'm really excited i i was speaking to todd uh from purism um todd weaver um, from purism at Libra planet because he was there so and we catch up semi-regularly as well, try and get some progress and work out what's going on and, nice. and, and things like that. So it's it's something that I'm really kind of hopeful that, that we'll get something there to to try and kind of push the terrible state that 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 phones are in at the moment. Really? Yep. Yeah. I absolutely agree. They're absolutely in a terrible state, especially from a privacy standpoint yeah. alone. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, speak, speaking of what you know interests the 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 known project, is there anything that we can look forward to that you, that well that you even specifically look forward to for future aspects of the gnome and maybe even a little bit of uh, some insider information? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, open that briefcase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I personally, what what I kind of one of the areas we're pushing, I guess, uh, coming up soon is some of our hack fests. So. One of the ones we're hoping to do is a performance hack fest, um, kind of actually focusing quite hard on, because we have quite a few tools actually that do help with performance and we can look at. Um, so there's like the built-in shell inspector, which people don't really know about called Looking Glass. Um, so if you Alt F2 and do LG, then that has console for basically your shell so you can do stuff with it. And there's lots of system profiling tools and we kind I kind of want to make sure that um, GNOME also works well on lower end devices or things that don't necessarily have the CPU power or the graphics or the memory that 
that a traditional desktop works um, with because um, that's kind of important if we want to push GNOME in um, more developing countries as well um, and trying mm -hmm. to sort of introduce more people to to free software and, and, to, and, to, and to GNU Linux systems. Um, and so if we can get stuff working better on lower-end devices, uh, then that also helps on higher-end devices and, and trying to get some, some performance um, improvements there as well. Um, so that that one is hopefully coming up soon, which will be quite key, I think. So that'll be quite good. And I guess the the other major one we have coming up, um, we're kind of looking um, at releasing around the end of the year, is GTK four. Nice. Now, so that'll be great. And this one, before I can already read the Reddit comments, but this is <laughs> this is not GTK three. Right, this is, right. we're not just going to break everything and then it's all done. So what we're doing, because I mean the same KDE also had the same problem when they had KDE four and yep. they said, hey, we got four dot zero. By the way, no one use it because it's all broken and that that's never going to happen. So the idea is that when you have the new version, like we do for other bits of GNOME software, so we have uh, say. 3.57.95, 96, 97, those are all basically the ones that are going to turn into the next stable release. So GTK right. should be a stable system that people can start to use. So that's coming up, and that should help. The way it's been architected as well should help with some of the lessons we've learned about how GTK 3 works and how we can actually use some bits of hardware and things like that to actually make things better like i was mentioning the shell extensions so if we get gtk4 and we get other things together then it just improves a lot of the infrastructure to kind of make things a bit better so yeah. hopefully that's going to be coming up soon as well there's just a follow-up to that that's fantastic especially since it's so soon but there's a follow-up is there was a blog post um rough somewhere sometime last year about maybe making a three a three lts version for it like so that gtk3 would have its own like an LTS push. So like there's, there's some saying for like some DE saying that they would want to stick with GTK three for some time, even after yep. GTK four. Yep. That's so, all fine. Yeah. So, um, nice. yeah, if, I mean, again, it depends on, I mean, we, we kind of almost kind of have that already. So, yeah. so, I mean, we had, I think it was GTK three twenty six was the one right. that was the sort of first, API stable thing as well. I mean, a lot of it relies on volunteers and people actually willing to maintain it. I mean, I don't think that GTK three is is going to kind of just disappear suddenly. Mm -hmm. um, the way it works is, I mean, we've got like a, a couple of years stable release cycle as well. So, it, it, I mean, a lot can happen in in a couple of years. So we can't mm -hmm. sort of commit to it's like yes, we'll definitely fix everything and everything will happen because <laughs> right. people just don't do it. You can't but fire. The, them. Right. But it's not going to be like the. It's not going to be the GTK two to GTK three thing. So there's still going to be like a, a buffer zone. Yeah. Because like, yeah. So like yeah. the same thing that the KDE learned. They learned their lesson as well from three to four. So when they went four to five, they learned we should not break things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's. I mean. I mean. It's going to. It's going to be in distributions for as long as there's applications that depend on it. Yeah. Right. So. You, if if you're going to rely on 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 the stable, then it then it's going to be there, and there's going to be awesome. a level of 
of support that has to come in because bugs are going to get reported. Um, I mean, at some point, I'm sure we might be able to say, right, okay, this is deprecated now. But I mean, we still have things on GTK too. So, right. so yeah. that there is a point at which you have to say, it's like, yeah, we're, we're not going to support it, but how long? And, and that's never going to be that length of periods, never going to be long enough for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not certainly not going to be the case that, we release GTK four and then go right. Everyone on GTK three sucks to be you. <laughs> uh, you can port now, or we're just going to ignore you. I mean, that, that, that's that's just not where we're coming from at all. All right. That's There's one enough. thing I wanted to follow up. You mentioned the Hackfest, and even in your conference, you made everyone raise their hand if they had been to a Hackfest. You kind of drilled in the importance of getting involved through a Hackfest. Tell me about, I'm going to my first Linux Fest this year for the first time. I'm going to Southeast Linux Fest, mm-hmm. but I haven't yet signed up for a hack fest. Tell me what I would expect if I went to a place like that. Are they going to be like, oh, you could barely code, loser. Get out of here. Or what's the community like? So you know, that, that was a really interesting thing when I, I learned when I joined GNOME as as the exec director, because um, there is there can be a bit of a... Um, kind of perceived wisdom on the internet that gnome people might not be the most friendly or receptive to new people shall we say <laughs> uh, and i was astounded i mean that when i joined this was some of the most friendly bunch and welcoming bunch of people i'd, I'd ever met in many free software communities and was mm-hmm. so welcoming and, and, and things like that as well which was absolutely fantastic um so hackfests are normally it's smaller groups of people um so mm-hmm. depending on what you want you're interested in so like the gtk hackfest has a fairly heavy technical content um obviously of makes things sense. like we're trying to get the next version of um gtk out or something like that but there's mm. there's things like uh, we have uh the u- user experience hackfest where you're trying to work on design and working on how people are doing things and and, and things like that as well so huge different areas that we're trying to do different focuses on on what we're trying to do and where we're doing them as well they're, they're normally smaller things so normally maybe eight to ten people you're kind of getting together to kind of work on things um i think it's what what uh um ubuntu called sprints for a while um, yeah gotcha. so trying trying to get those because that's part of the problem with being sort of globally diverse and and all over the world is people trying to work in different time zones it's a bit harder than just getting together around the table and maybe having a beer or two. Yeah. Right. Nice. So there's a lot going on with GNOME. Um, how can people, even maybe everyday ordinary people, get involved with helping to support GNOME? Um, so one of the things we've, we've done is we're always after basically people who use it um, from the very basic level, have a look try and work out if there's some some things that some bugs you find then please get them reported make sure you talk to your distributions and, and get these things because sometimes if we don't see it um then we just don't know about it um right. we can't test everything in the world um right. and the other the other important ones for certainly us is the uh, uh is our friends of gnome program so this is people who regularly donate um each month to the gnome project which um, then helps us run things like the hack fests and conferences and hosting our servers and putting everything together as well. So, so that's also uh, really appreciated as we're a, we're a non-profit. 
So if you're in the US, it's tax deductible and everything. Nice. <laughs> it's like getting the money right back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> almost. Well, Neil, it's been an awesome conversation. We appreciate you taking the time with us, especially uh, being different time zones, like you said, because that's always a, 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 a trial to get everybody on the same page. So we appreciate the time you gave us. Very welcome. Lovely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great. All right, everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Destination Linux Podcast. Ryan, that is so uh-huh. admirable that you would wear Destination you, Linux Rocco. apparel and yeah. not your own channel's apparel. Thank you, Rocco. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know what's also <laughs> admirable, Ryan? The fact that? that you actually own a Destination Linux t-shirt. That is true. Yeah, and you own one, too. I own one. I send the admiration right huh. back towards you, my friend. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> You are, you guys are so subtle. <laughs> so, so subtle. I, I almost didn't detect the sarcasm. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, this is not recorded, right? You would never want to make us look ridiculous like the whole teenage girl conversation. And then the giggling thing that became the like it just transitioned to it's like he just likes just to just to mess with us. <laughs> Michael said he's on the phone, he'll be back in a bit. He's so important. I know. What could be more important than this? We're his only friends. I know. Like (laughs) his mom or something? Yeah. Who's calling him? Like I think he's lying. I don't think he's calling being on the phone at all. He's calling himself. He's like, "Oh, I'm so busy, guys. Hold on. I'm so busy." You are such a big deal, Michael. You're a big deal to everybody. All three people. Rats. Fluffy tails. Don't act like you're on the phone, Michael. I mean, you know, he puts his video on for a second to show as he's holding his phone up to his Uh, ear, you know? Give me a break. So important. (laughs) Michael's like, so many podcasts keep calling me. (laughs) I think think he was trying to tell you. A hundred a day call me and ask me to join our show. I think he was trying to tell you he doesn't, he's not listening no more. You don't care. You know what I okay. noticed, though, Ryan? Did you listen to the Ubuntu podcast episode that he oh. was on? No, I haven't listened to it yet. So I listened to it. And okay, so I didn't listen to the whole thing. I can get through the whole thing yet. But uh-huh. I listened to the first part, half of it. And when you know, Michael was introduced, they asked Michael, you know, up to tell everybody about himself and what else he does. Where would people know him from? And uh-huh. He mentioned the fact that he does talks digital. He's got a this week Linux podcast. He got this and that. And I don't think I heard Destination Linux come up not at time? all. Not wow! Else. How could you forget that? Wow! Yeah, I'm saying it never came up. You'd think that would matter to him? No. <clears throat> no way, man. The one I was on has thirty thousand <laughs> losers. <laughs> 
I only go on podcasts of 30,000 or more downloads. Well, one of our other hosts had to take a really important call. He's really important, if you didn't know. You may not have heard of him, but he's super important. He is His really. name's Michael. Yeah. <laughs> he's really important, and he's got all kinds of phone calls to take, so. Yeah. Are you done being super important, Michael? Well, never done, but for now, I'll take a break. All right. Good. For now. <laughs> I can stop whenever I want to. It's fine. Neil, if you were to run a podcast yourself, let's say you run one, it would be super popular. Obviously, you have a couple people you choose to be your podcast buddies. And then you find out the next week that they go on to another podcast, but <laughs> fail to mention your <laughs> podcast at all. How would you, as a, as a director, handle something like that? Uh, with good grace all the time. Exactly. Ryan, <laughs> did I hear him say that Gnome transcends KDE? I think he did. He just said it was, I heard it was better than KDE's what he said. In fact, by the time we're done editing this episode, that's exactly what he will be saying. That's what it'll sound like he's saying. When it comes to the workflow, I agree. It is the best workflow. We'll cut that part out. (laughs) 